You're listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shaw, and today on the show, we have Dr. Jonathan Levine, CEO of Folio Water. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. To get started, can you tell me about your background? So I have a PhD in Earth and Environmental Engineering, uh, and we started Folio Water about a year and a half to two years ago now. That's awesome. Can you tell us about uh, Folia and what inspired you to start it? Yeah, so at Folia Water, we make the world's first water filter that costs pennies and not dollars. Uh, my, my co-founder invented it for her PhD research at McGill University and took it, we took it from lab, did field testing, did customer discovery, and then realized that one day we found ourselves at the, the headquarters of uh, well, Pepsi, and it was just the two of us in, in our living room at the time. Mm-hmm. We thought, well, you know, we might have a company here. Uh, we better look into this. And we ended up forming the company and leaving our, our academic jobs as scientists and branching out to the entrepreneurial world. That's awesome. What has your journey been like? Oh, you know. Uh, so for the listeners at home, I was asked to give an honest thing, uh, an honest assessment. Every entrepreneur has rough times and great times. There's always ups. There's always downs. There's always moments where you're like, Oh boy, we are in a lot of trouble. This is a legal notice from such and such, and this and that and the other. And then you find out that eh, it was really no big deal. Or, you know, well, yeah, it was a problem, but you get over it. So uh, you ask for honesty, and, and so it's it's the ups and the downs. And the, the good and the bad, and there's good surprises and bad surprises, and it's just kind of how it goes. What have been some good surprises along the way? You know, we got into accelerator programs here in Silicon Valley, and... Uh, the interview actually started with me saying, I appreciate you having the interview with me, but uh, they had asked to have the interview with us. And I said, well, we're not a SaaS company. We're not a .com. I don't know why an accelerator in Silicon Valley was, is even talking to us, but I really appreciate mm-hmm. you asking us to be here. And they said, oh, no, no, we do everything and this, that, and the other. And so then we ended up getting in and, and showing up here. And the other nice surprise has been everybody in the Bay Area is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> There, weren't expecting that there's well there's a, a fundamental professionalism about entrepreneurship that so every every city has their special industries so one city might be pharmaceuticals another city uh, i'm from houston maybe petroleum or oil also healthcare, the biggest hospital system but in san francisco it's entrepreneurship it's how do you make a company when you don't have product market fit how do you make a company when nobody's done that kind of company before how do you figure out the pieces? How do you build the ship as you're going along and sailing with it? Yeah. Sounds good. What have been some of the harder parts of starting Folio? Oh, you know, you're off and on either broke or not broke. <laughs> uh, we flew, we each flew 125,000 miles last year. Uh, it was pretty Ooh. awful. Uh, you know, it had to be done we had to do customer discovery in all these countries and showing up and actually being functional after 30 hour flights and having to walk into any given room and do customer interviews just how it goes and and you have to hear we do we do water in developing countries and so you things run the gamut you find yourself in with the absolute top people who are the incredibly rich and you end up with the people who are incredibly poor and you have to figure out where in the middle is, is that you actually need to work to be functional. And you hear terrible things on both sides. <laughs> and you hear great things on both sides. So 
just how it, you know it's it's part of the entrepreneurial journey is is that's just kind of how it goes yeah for sure would love to hear a little more detail on folia itself and the development process because both you and your co-founder are scientists you have done the scientific discovery process i'm assuming but would love to hear more about the actual development of folia and how you came upon the idea yeah so so terry who's my my cto co-founder and wife uh was asked for her phd they said could you make water that would uh could you make a, a paper that would make safe water that was it that was what they asked her and so she went and she invented uh, our papers have silver nanoparticle silver nanoparticles so the silver kills bacteria and viruses the physical paper physically screens out um, larger parasites. So it's, it's her, her PhD work was chemistry of silver nanoparticles in paper. Her background is fiber science and paper. My PhD work was in uh, porous media flow through, through rocks for billion ton scale disposal of CO2. My postdoctoral work was on deep ocean oil spills like Deepwater Horizon. So there's this sort of environmental theme. My master's work was water in Africa. So that's kind of mm-hmm. the general, what are the big questions there are to solve in the world? It's this question of you're studying, how do you invent a solution, a technical solution, a physical solution? Because we're physical scientists. So we was do physical laboratory work. How do you make a physical solution to a problem? So Terry goes, creates her paper. And, and she doesn't buy silver nanoparticles. We make it on paper machines. So mm-hmm. we have the world's largest uh, nanoparticle factories. They're called paper mills. They're about one mile long. Mm-hmm. Giant factories. We can make an unbelievable amount in a given hour. So she succeeds. And now what she's supposed to do next? Well, if she stays a chemist, she has to leave her project and go and study some other obscure chemistry and tinker around in a lab mm-hmm. and find out something about how something or other works mm-hmm. that's not necessarily practical. But she said, hey, this thing's working. But she she had done some laboratory testing of like, you know, slightly dirty water. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things, she was very self-aware and knew, look, a lot of things work in the lab. The moment you get into like the real world, they fail. Mm-hmm. So for her first postdoc, she went into the field. She went to South Africa. The papers worked in real life. Mm-hmm. From there, she went and she, she was like, okay, fine. So they work in real life. Maybe regular people don't care. Maybe they're like, oh, okay, that's nice, but I don't like it. Physically, I don't like it. Some you, you just never know, right? And she found out people loved it. the The only response was the only confusion was where do I buy these now? That was about it. So she said, okay, well that worked. And so we've just kept expanding the toolkit and saying, okay, what's the next thing? What does this take? How do we get this thing to go from something that she had in the laboratory to mm-hmm. something that's available in every single store in every single developing country? That's our mm-hmm. goal. Our goal is to be a staple people buy bread and milk we want them to not think about safe water we want them just to like buy water filters you buy soap you buy water filters and then you know you use soap and use water filters Hmm. just that simple what are some of the solutions that already exist in these markets that you're bringing your product to and in what way are you disrupting the current market so we have a consumer goods product and it's important to start differentiating you get into business models and how things are sold and value chains and distribution so people think oh water filter well, it should be a water filter is a similar product. We thought the same. We talked to various uh, companies, distributors, interviewed people all around the world. And in fact, if you're selling a water filter right now, you're selling an expensive appliance. Uh, the world's best-selling water filter is the Unilever Purit. It's sold in India to upper-class and middle-class Indians who are not our target customer. Our target customer are people who make 2 to $10 per day. They're lower middle-class or low-income people who have an income, 
but they can't afford a $50 or $100 appliance. And the next thing is the way you sell an appliance. Well, if you're going to go and buy, you know, sort of multiply by 10 or 100, if you're going to buy a $500 refrigerator or a $2,000 refrigerator, which is the equivalent, you go to a specialty store, you're going to get consumer reports, you're going to read on about it online, you're going to do a lot of research, you're going to get a warranty, you're going to lease to own, and now you have this very complex dedicated sales staff, dedicated sales structure, you need a warranty program, you have complex aftermarket and sales support. And so that whole process of how you buy a refrigerator is how water filters are sold today. Hmm. And how you go to the grocery store and buy food and beverage, how you go to a, a pharmacy and buy, you know, if you want a Band-Aid, if you want just like regular consumer goods items, mm-hmm. totally different sales channels, totally different who's selling it to you, how it got there, what's being said to you, all of it's very different. You're not saying this is an expensive specialized thing. You're saying, yeah, yeah, buy these every day. You buy milk, buy water filters, buy a consumer goods water filter, have it in the grocery store as just a regular grocery store item. Hmm, very interesting. Sounds like you guys are, are really disruptive in a couple of different ways. It sounds like you guys have a very different distribution model from what current companies have just because of how different your product is. We have the exact same distribution model as a bottle of water, but we're 10 times cheaper. Hmm. That's the key realization. So it comes out that our nearest competitor is bottled water. It's not a water filter because bottled water is sold through those channels in the same kind of way and at the same kind of price point. And so we're 10 times cheaper than that nearest competitor. Now there's a bit more, it's a water filter. We, we package them like simple coffee funnel filters. I, I literally have one in my back pocket because it's like a coffee funnel filter. It's the simplest thing in the world, right? But the idea is that the water goes through with just gravity, it goes right through. I'm opening up a cone to show. It's just a coffee funnel, very simple. Mm-hmm. And so that's different than a bottled water, but it's 10 times cheaper. So we're 50 cents for 50 liters is our suggested retail price, a penny per liter, whereas water is typically sold in things like 20 liter bottles for $1. And so there's a huge existing market. It's a $20 billion market, but there's a tier of people who are just a little step down who are underserved. The other thing that's very well known and report after report that we, you know, had had seen from, from my master's degree, which is we'll just say more than a decade ago now, is look, the, the it's also known that low-income people pay more. We're not talking about the destitute who can't pay anything. Low-income people in, in South Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in urban Mexico City, in urban Mumbai, in urban Bangkok, they pay for water and they pay more than their wealthier peers in country as well as often us. What we pay for tap water is super cheap. We're paying less than people who make vastly less money than we do but water is a necessity, you have no choice. So people pay for the water, which is often contaminated nonetheless. Bottled water in many countries is still actually germ-filled water. So they're paying for water, but they're paying three to 10 times more for water than, we, than you would expect. And so that's an wow. existing market we can save low-income money, low-income people who need money, we can save them money. And then there's a tier of people below them who we can now enable to say, I can afford a good product that's made for me. And it has to be a good product. It has to be high quality, slick packaging, good marketing. Everything is the same. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where on the, who your customer segment is. We happen to have low income customers as our segment. You still have to have exactly the same quality marketing, quality packaging and everything else. And there's no reason. It's, it's been done before. If people go to the grocery store in their country, they buy products like my product. Yeah, definitely. That sounds really incredible. 
I'm curious, what are your current distribution channels? So how do you get your product into the hands of these low-income consumers? Because one of the things that's hard is trying to distribute to certain market segments is just usually harder. So I'm wondering if you've experienced some of that. Yeah, so you don't start off with rural Africa where there's no supply chain. You can't go there. You need to have NGOs and governments do that. You start off with, well, people in urban areas way easier supply chain. There's existing distribution networks. There's existing stores. There's kiosks. There's grocery stores. You can now get into questions of how many square meters is the store? How many SKUs are there? Stock keeping units. And what you're getting into is the language of warehousing and groceries and retail distribution, which above that is a, a wholesaler or a warehouser. And above that is an import exporter or a master distributor. So we're looking for food and beverage consumer goods distributors who know how to position products into their market. They know how to, they have to have some ability to do localization, but again, lots of foods and beverages get sold into, from the United States or somewhere else, into Argentina, into China, into Thailand, and somebody knows how to do that positioning and say, okay, this has been done here, this is how we do it locally, and here's how we push it out. We need to be in these stores to begin with. You need an in-store advertisement to begin with, And then you can go into like regional, you can go to radio ads, you can go to national campaigns. Some, so we're looking at Mexico right now. They have smartphones in Mexico. Just because people are low income, they actually have higher rates of of cell phone ownership in Africa, very high rates of smartphone ownership in Mexico. And so you have some of the same digital marketing tools, but not all of them. You still have radio in many countries, whereas we might have uh, everything's gone TV or, or internet now. But those are just different marketing channels. Hmm. I'm sure in 1920-something, when they went from magazines to radio, somebody was going, oh, well, that's the new thing. We got a new... And it's not just a, it's just a different marketing channel, different advertising channel. Yeah, that's definitely fair. So one of the things that's interesting about you and you and your wife at Folia is that both of you are scientists, so neither of you have a business background. So I'm wondering, what were the things that you had to do to, to bring yourself up to speed and... How did you sort of entrench yourself in the entrepreneurship ecosystem? Yeah, so you're given this problem. You have this magic paper. The paper for the cost of manufacturing paper, you can make a week of safe water for an entire family with a simple paper cone. Okay, how should it get out into the world? How do you achieve a mass market? So at first we thought, well, maybe it's an NGO. We're talking about low-income people. Okay, NGO. Well, NGOs don't scale. You can't donate your way to solutions. So... How do you figure out if it's an NGO, if it's a for-profit? Okay, we're a for-profit. How do you figure out who should the customer be? It turns out that if you have a PhD in science, the PhD in science is a license to teach yourself new things. Fundamentally, the part about a good PhD is you're learning to think, and you're learning to acquire new skills, and you should be able to self-expand your toolkit. And how and where you get information, you can get information from books, you can interview domain experts, Last night I had dinner with a C-suite executive at one of the largest grocery store chains in the country. And so we got down to like the really details of like mid, mid grocery store aisles versus the front racks versus end caps and things like that, right? And so it's just, you expand that tool base and learn where the thought frameworks are in any given field. And you pursue that through a variety of different avenues. And you, before your product market fit, By definition, there's no such thing as the recipe. One of the definitions of a startup is a company looking for its business model. 
which really just to say a recipe. There's a lot of words that you can actually substitute recipe in for, and it turns out you get to the same place. So what you're trying to do as a company is say, the way we do sales is we do one, two, three, four, five. Here's a sales script. We hired this kind of person to be the salesperson. This is how we reach customers. This is how we do outbound. This is how we do inbound. This is how we close. This is how we have a sales pipeline. We can measure all these things. After we have them, this is how we do support. In other words, recipe, 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 recipe. You have big recipes, you have small recipes, but ultimately, nobody has the recipe when you start when you're at early phase. By definition, if, if that was the case, you would just have a business. You'd have a small business or a franchise. So a franchise, somebody gives you the recipe and says, this is how you do McDonald's, here's how you train your people, here's what they do, and so forth. So the nature of a startup is nobody has the recipe. So it doesn't matter if you have an MBA or a PhD or any other, you, you, our, our hostess has a sociology degree and is on her several uh, social enterprise and you've mm-hmm. made several successful, successful organizations. You came out with a sociology background. You had a toolkit and you expanded the operational execution. You, you were in, what was it, 19 countries? Mm-hmm. So you had staff, you had people you had to, to interface with and you had the mm-hmm. skills there. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a lot about lots of uh, ferocious googling and lots of talking to people and, and, and being willing to admit what you don't know yeah and and being like you know when you when you come at it with a phd you don't show up with an mba and so you have you have the key advantage that you know that you don't know anything when you start and you know that you're not supposed to know anything when you start so you throw away ego and you say look i'm completely naive in this field how do i learn the terms how do i learn what all of it means and then the other thing is a very thick skin as people insult you to your face and say you're completely incompetent and blah, 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 blah. And you go, okay, so how about you teach me what you know that you know, why do you know better than I do? And why do you think that what you know has the right information? And the best people are nice about it or, or will even tell you, I'm pretty sure you did the basic homework. So, so we just went through 500 Startups Accelerator. And the reason why we felt it was unbelievable is the, the entrepreneurs and residents and the mentors there who've had like, you know, 100x companies, uh, sales and things like that, had the remarkable characteristic of saying, I don't know anything more than you know. I can find you a domain expert who would know more than you, but I'm not an expert in that area. I know how to, you know, these are people who've taken, who founded companies and made 100 person, 1000 person companies, right? These are people who are legit. You can look them up on Crunchbase. They have exited. They're the real deal, right? And they'll say to you, I don't know anything more than you do. I know how to operate a company, but your question has to do with this detailed domain, and I don't know about sales into that particular narrow area that's outside of my domain. You go, wow. They're willing to tell you that they, you know that even they, they're experts. They're experts in one thing. You're in a different thing. And so their answer is, here's the path to getting that information. And that's, that's entrepreneurship. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a real combination of humility combined with confidence, like not letting yeah. an investor or someone who may not know your product very well walk all over you, but at the same time being willing to admit when you don't know a certain thing and when you do need help. Part part of the, the CEO hat is getting to talk to investors, and some of them are brilliant and know an amazing amount, and you go, I can't believe this person knows this level of stuff. In 10 minutes, this person is up to speed and knows this. And other people who are gurus and experts in this and that and the other say things and within five minutes they're saying things and you're like yeah have you been outside of the united states i mean we had one guy say there's no cell phones in africa 
And we're just like, I mean, we were in a room of like a dozen of people in, in his firm and, and they all were like, what are you talking about? There's more cell phones than people in Africa right now. And he's like, no, 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 there's no cell phones in Africa. And they're like, yeah, there are. Right? <laughs> we sell into low-income markets. So many Americans are not aware that people in India, ready for this, have money. That there's a middle class in Latin America. That there's a larger middle class in China than the population of the United States. But I have to go into rooms with people who have a hundred million or billion dollars either in their pocket or in their advisement, and they don't know this. And you just have to sit there and be like, no, no, no. Well, so what happened was that, um, yeah, China got pretty rich there. Did you know this? <laughs> and India yeah. has a pretty large middle class. I mean, it's Silicon Valley. People know about Bangalore and India. But, like, you have to sit there and be like, no, no, the global south has a lot of money now. It's not destitute. That's not really, yeah, they've got a lot of people who live in cities. <laughs> let's let's talk about that. And, and sometimes you go, okay, well, that person's not willing to listen. And other people are like, oh. Oh, okay. Interesting. Let's talk about it. Yeah, definitely. No, I think it's about finding... I think a lot of it is about finding the right investors and finding the right advisors who are sort of on the same page as you and who also have that willingness to learn with you. And and if they don't share your vision and if they don't get it, then, then they're not going to... Look, they're not going to invest anyway. And, and whether they're a production partner, distribution partner, it doesn't matter. If they're part of your organization in, in an investing time or the resources sense... They're a version of an investor. They're investing something. And so if they don't get it because they'd have never been to, you know, our first market is Mexico. If they've never been there and they just think that, that Mexico is this big gray box question mark to them, oh, then they're, then that's appropriate. They don't have, they're, they're not going to know how to contribute. But if they get it and they get the vision, they're going to go, okay, uh, we're an early phase company. We're pre-product market fit. And so they're going to say, okay, well, the important part is that you do small experiments to get to product market fit. That's been one of the big, you said to, to speak to the sort of people who are coming up, who, who are considering having businesses who are starting themselves. In a lot of other markets, people ask you what your revenue is and what your revenue growth is. And we left, um, we, we were in a smaller city before, and we talked to people in on the East Coast. And the question that people kept having was things around like, well, what's your, what's your growth revenue history? And it turns out that that means that they're a completely and totally, utterly incompetent investor in an early stage company. <laughs> I can't stress this enough. It means that they are asking you for completely the wrong things. They're measuring the wrong things. They're asking the wrong things. It doesn't matter what your revenue growth is before product market fit. It matters is that you have product market fit. If the revenue growth is proof that you have product market fit, fine. But if it's all fake because actually the whole time mm. your customer acquisition cost was higher than your lifetime value, it doesn't matter. So, um, yeah, you know, the key thing when you're when you're early phase is there's all this, there seems to be this external expectation that you're gonna have revenue and growth history. But revenue and growth history isn't the thing. It has to do with product market fit and making sure you have the right metrics if your customer acquisition cost is too high. If you don't know how to acquire additional customers, the fact that you've had revenue up to now, but they're inbound, well, that's not sufficient. And so having people ask for a company that's concluding a product or has just launched a product and asking for 18 months of growth history, well, they're asking for the wrong thing. They're a later phase investor and they're giving you actual misinformation if the stage of your company is where you need to find product market fit. And by the way, 500 startups, like two, three weeks in, we were in the seed program and they were like, look, nobody here has product market fit. We've already given, we've already invested in you, we're aware. 
you have great traction. You seem, you all have something like $100,000 plus revenue. Some of you have, you know, $30,000 a month revenue and so forth. That's different. Just because you have revenue is different. And so asking the right questions about product market fit, now you have the basis of having a profitable business. Now you go and you scale it. Can you talk a little bit more about product market fit? How do you figure out whether or not you have the right product market fit? You look under a rock. There's this magic rock underneath there. There's a <laughs> magic glowing box. And you're like, got it. You're looking, you're looking for you have a replicable ability to get additional customers, to grow your sales. And then once you have those people to support them where there's repurchasing or some sort of, right, you want recurring revenue where you now say, okay, this is, this is, re- this is growing in a clear way. And here's the exact steps that we do. We do A, we do B, we do C. This is how we get additional customers. This is how we keep customers. This is how we get sales. And by the way, my customer acquisition cost better be less than my lifetime value. Right? I, I, if I have a customer, they need to be giving me $10 per, and I co- it costs me a dollar to get them, and, and another dollar to keep them. And it, unless those ratios are right, yes, you can throw money infinitely at, at advertising, uh, but if you're spending more on the advert, right? So, so for us, we're looking for, we're at a medium to enterprise scale sale, right? We make a consumer product that gets sold in the grocery store, but it means that we can start off selling to grocery stores, but really we need somebody who's doing marketing positioning, which is an import exporter. And so we're looking at somebody who we have a longer sales cycle that needs to physically get across an ocean to get to them. They then need to do some market trials, figure out, yeah, okay, this is selling correct in this neighborhood. This is the right positioning for these guys. Okay, now they're selling it through these several stores. What do you do next? You push it out to all 800 stores in that in that grocery store chain. You push it out to all 44,000 stores in that gas station chain. Now you're reaching a huge market. But you, you have to go to that step by step by step and measure. And it's all measurements along the way. It's all quantitative things and quantitative metrics these days. Yeah, definitely. Be very, very data-driven. Really take a critical look at what it is that what it is that your customers are finding value in and whether or not they're coming back. I, I think you mentioned some very important things. So to close out, do you have some advice for entrepreneurs who are listening to this, uh, especially for entrepreneurs who might come from science backgrounds? So one of the big challenges in coming from a science background to the business background is every field has its own jargon technical words that are basically there to it, it, it expedites and makes very specific conversations. You know exactly what you're both talking about. But the other thing that it does is it keeps other people out. It makes a sort of guild, it's exclusionary, and so you don't know what words the business people are using. But all of those words are actually quite reasonable and quite simple. Business is actually very technical, very straightforward, very easy to understand. And when you talk to the right business person, they explain it to you, you go, oh, that's very straightforward and very logical. It's all very analytical, very logical, very orderly, and you go, this is done because of the following reasons, and there's a word to describe that, and it means this, and you go, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. There's a big gap where the scientist people go to talk to the businessy people, and they're just on different wavelengths, and they can't even understand each other, and so they give up. And some of it is, look, if you find the right books, you can start getting in it that way. If If you're an introvert, there's other ways to come at the information where you can read about it. Uh, and understand what's going on. One of my favorite books uh, when we were earlier was called Get Backed. He both has very specific examples of how do you tell a story about what your business is going to do. 
He has specific examples of slides. And then the back, he says, look, the whole way to do business is make friendships and build relationships. Uh, be genuine, do things like write thank you notes and show up to birthday parties and give gifts. Crazy concept, right? Because most of business is actually based on relationships, especially investing, especially early stage stuff. It's not transactional. It's not for this, I'll do that. It's relationships. It's you trust each other, your friends, this kind of thing. And so it's build the relationships. And if people are just jerks to you, find somebody else who's nicer to you, right? There's somebody over in, in your business network and, and it could be friend of a friend. It could be somebody in your, your family. Your parents got a friend this who was successful in business. Go and talk to them and be honest. That's the thing. Be honest and open and say, I don't have a business background. But the vision is to get from here to here. And don't say it's because we're really good at this technical thing. It's, you know, people don't want germ-free water. Nobody buys germ-free water. They buy healthy kids. You want a modern lifestyle. You don't want to miss work so much. You don't want to lie in bed and have stomach cramps. Fine, but you don't want germ-free water. You want healthy kids, right? So what is the real thing that, that what's the vision that, that people are getting with this? What's the real benefit they get out of it in like, four words, eight words. Once you have that, then you can talk to, to, to somebody in the business world who will, who will talk to you in a reasonable fashion that you understand, but find that person. Fantastic. Yep. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was really, really valuable. Cool. I think the show is awesome. I think there's a ton of, uh, non-traditional entrepreneurs out there and there's a lot of good value there. You know, we, we just came from 500 startups uh, they get the like ninety percent of the companies are not from Silicon Valley, and more than half the companies are not from the United States. That's amazing. And way more than half the founders are not from the United States. So the the era of the uh, the the white male Silicon Valley programmer uh, startups the startup world is a lot more diverse than that. And you know, five hundred startups in many ways thinks that there's way more value outside of the valley because people are trying really hard and. If you can make it in, you know, one of the guys is from Nova Scotia. If you can make a company in Nova Scotia as a tech startup, that guy is amazing. He's going to have one of the best companies, right? Because he's done it. He's made it happen. You can check out Folio Water on Twitter. For learnings from our conversations with our awesome guests, check me out on Medium or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week.